Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We used this passage last week, and uh, I told you we were going to come back to it. Today we'll begin with the 22nd verse. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. (coughs) Lord, if that is true, then it makes all the difference in the world. And we are coming at it from a perspective that you have revealed yourself in your word, in the Bible, in what we have just read. And so, will you teach us from that? Will you give us encouragement where that's needed? Will you open our hearts? Will you cause your spirit, who is among us today, to be our teacher and our comforter all at once. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in this room, there are at least four kinds of people. There are those who are saved and they know it. There are those that are unsaved, and they know it. And there are those that are unsaved, but think they're saved, and that's deadly. And there are those that are saved and don't know it don't have assurance of that. Now, if you're in that last category, that you're saved, but you don't really have any assurance of that, you don't don't really know it, then it's likely that when you are honest in those moments, that you worry about that that you're concerned about that, that when 
when you know that you have done that which God has said don't do or you have ignored what he has said to do, that you perhaps say, I wonder if I'm even his child. Why would I do this if I was? Why can't I get away from that sin? And if that's the case, then you don't have comfort in your salvation. In fact, in those four categories, there are those that uh, take comfort that ought not to. The only ones that should have comfort from those four categories are those that are saved and have a real assurance of that salvation. Now, we can err on one of two sides when it comes down to the idea of assurance. We can either assure people too quickly or we can not assure them at all, you know, to keep them on their toes. You know what I mean? And I've made both mistakes. There are a number of ways to share Christ, and I've had the privilege of, of, of learning a number of those ways. And, and one of the things that, particularly early on in my Christian life, that I used to try to share Christ were uh, what we call gospel tracts. You know what I mean, don't you? You know, the things that in the, are sitting there in the public restroom when you, when you go in because somebody's left it there and they're, they're hoping that, that somebody will read and, you know, some people do. And the way that I was trained was this, and, and there are a number of them. Some of them are really, really great in terms of their content. And uh, uh, one, one I have a concern about, and, and it was because of the way it ended. You would take them through page after page of this little booklet, and it, it was good in terms of the, the content and letting people know that, you know, we all sin and we need uh, to turn to Christ and that kind of a thing. And then it would lead you to a page that would have uh, a prayer on it. And you would encourage the one that you were sharing with to pray that prayer. So far, so good, basically, if I would usually encourage them to use their own words and that kind of a thing, because there's nothing magical about this prayer and so on. But then in this particular track, the next page started talking about how they could know they were Christians. Now, this was in, with good intent, I think, because those who wrote that gospel track knew that when people are talking about the Lord and, and yeah, if they make a profession of faith and pray a prayer like that, that, that Satan's going to attack them and cause doubts and that kind of a thing. So the scripture there was good. The only problem was that they would then encourage, and I did this with some folks, they would then encourage uh, 
you to have them sign their name and put the date on there, and then to tear it off and put it in your wallet so that anytime you wondered whether or not you were a believer, you would just take out your wallet and pull that out and you would say, okay, I, I prayed that prayer. Now, here's the problem with that is that it's not about praying a a symbolic prayer. It's not about walking an aisle. It is about real salvation that only comes from God's Holy Spirit and is testified in our heart by that Spirit and by the Word of God and tested and tried over time. So I think it's wisest for us. We we should rejoice when someone comes to that point. But then what we should say is they've made a profession of faith. Not they got saved or they became a Christian. Because it's over time that we see that there's been transformation, that there is fruit in their lives, and so on. That's the, the one error of doing it too quickly. But sometimes we don't do it at all in terms of giving people confidence in their salvation. Today we're going to look at the last phrase of the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, if you're visiting with us, you need to understand that uh, Uh, What we've been doing for the last four weeks is looking at this uh, great question and answer. It is not a part of our standards, but it's a wonderful, uh, biblical, uh, theological, with application uh, statement. And we've been looking at the scriptural underpinnings of it. And the question, we read this earlier, the question that it is answering is, Uh, or asking is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Wouldn't that be great to know? (laughs) What is my only comfort in life and death? Real comfort. Comfort I'm entitled to. And so, the last three weeks, the first week, we looked at the phrase, I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't belong to myself, but I belong to Him, and that's my comfort in life and death, and we fleshed that out. And then week two, talked about, uh, we talked about what that phrase, my faithful Savior, means. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. And then week three, last week, He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And we looked at His great providence in our life for those those good and wonderful things and also those difficult things. And how He's on the throne. He reigns. Not just when it looks like He's reigning, but at all times. And then it ends with this. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also, He also 
assures me. There's the assurance of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, there's basically two biblical principles in this uh, last phrase, this last sentence of the answer to what is my only comfort in life and in death. The first principle is that the believer can know that he has eternal life. We can properly have an assurance of our salvation. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, if you took a survey, and, and I've done this uh, um, maybe in my bolder days, I don't know. Uh, I've done this door to door, and I've done this in airports, and I've done this at shopping centers, uh, where you, in order to begin a conversation, uh, you, you take a survey. Now, the survey was an actual survey. It wasn't fake. It wasn't a bait and switch, but it was in order to engage in a, a spiritual conversation with someone. And um, the survey started with the question, if you were to die tonight, do you know for certain that you'd go to heaven? If you were to die tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Now, obviously, there's several responses. There was always a few that would say, yes, I'm certain that I would go to heaven. And some of them had good reason to be certain of it. Others were just certain. They had no reason, but they were certain of it. And then there was always a few that would say, I'm pretty certain that I wouldn't go to heaven. But the vast majority of people over the years that I've asked that question to give this answer, I'm not sure anyone can really know for certain that they're going to heaven. I don't know if we can really, really know it for certain. Now, some would answer it that way because they were truly uncertain. Some would answer it that way even though they thought they were probably going to heaven, but they felt like, you know, that would be really arrogant for me to say I know for certain that I'm going to heaven. But here's the thing. It would be arrogant if I said, I know for certain I'm going to heaven because I'm good enough or because I've, you know, on the big scales in the sky, I've done enough good to outweigh the bad or, uh, you know, that I've worked my way to God. If you were certain you were going to heaven based on that, that shows a real arrogance. But if we say the reason I, I'm certain that I'm going to heaven is because of what God's Word says, and we go back to a verse like this, that these things were written for we who believe in the name of the Son of God that we may know we have eternal life, that tells me there is a way we can know it. 
And if it's based upon the Word of God and upon the work of Christ, there is nothing arrogant about that. Now the catechism here says, and the catechism, by the way, is just a question and answer. It's a way of teaching. You ask the question, you give the answer. Uh, Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life. In other words, it's not... It's not me saying, I have eternal life because of this. But he says, that's part of the work of God's Holy Spirit. Now, where's that come from in the Scripture? Let me give you um, several passages. Romans 8, verse 15 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself, that's the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to witness to the true children of God that they have indeed been adopted and therefore our children. And that can be, if you've been around, if you were adopted, or you've been around children who have been adopted, sometimes that can be an issue, especially early on. Okay, well, when do I go back? When do I move again? And there needs to be for them when they've been adopted that assurance no no this is your home I am your father this is your mother you're not going anywhere you're part of our family and that's what this says God's spirit does with our spirit He says, no, no, it's not about your behavior. It's not about you uh, earning your way into this family or uh, earning the right to stay in this family. I have adopted you, and you are mine. Then we read in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The idea is a, a, a down payment that, that the Spirit is in our hearts. We wouldn't have the Spirit unless we belong to Him. He likes using that phrase, 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We have a security deposit. And if you remember when we went through Ephesians, the first chapter said the same thing. Verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. 
In other words, we don't have everything yet, but we will, and there's a down payment that proves that we are His child. And so, if we are trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life, if you're not trusting in your own works, but you're trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, the work He did, not the work you try to do, then here's the promise. You have His Spirit. There doesn't have to be some kind of an outward manifestation of that. There will be manifestation. There will be fruit. There will be uh, changes in what you do and why you do things. But it's all about the Spirit dwelling in our heart. And that's where the catechism then takes us. The right response of our assurance is obedient service of Christ. The catechism, Heidelberg Catechism says this, and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The traditional outline for the Heidelberg Catechism, not just this first one, but all, all the way through, is sin, salvation, and service. So it talks to us about our, our sin, and that's the gospel, by the way. It talks to us about our sin and our need for Christ. And then it talks about what Christ has done, that's the salvation and then what follows, and that's the service. So here's the thing. When we have assurance of our salvation, when we know that everything that is necessary for our salvation has been done, has been provided, that our salvation's already been accomplished, then we are freed to serve Him willingly, not as slaves, not to earn something, but to show gratitude. That's the right response because we know that we are His child. I read of a former president of an Ivy League school that said, as a young man, I came to Christ. And the rest of my life has been a P.S., saying, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. So all that we do after we come to Christ is that, is that P.S. It's not to earn favor with Him, but rather it's to say, thank you for the favor, for the grace that you have given. And so what is our ultimate our ultimate comfort in knowing that we have assurance? Well, I think it goes back to what we read earlier in John 10. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
If you've taken Theology 101 with me, and a lot of you have, you've heard me talk about this in terms of the perseverance of the saints. The, the first pastor that I remember that preached the Bible talked about how uh, an evangelist used to come to the church when he was growing up, and uh, he, to illustrate this, he would ask for a child who was a volunteer, and of course all the little kids would want to do it, and he'd always pick a little girl, and so the little girl would come up to the front, and he would say, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to hold on to my hand, and you know, he had big old man hands, you know, and uh, uh, the little girl would take a hold of just a couple of his fingers. He said, now I'm going to pull away. You hold on. And, of course, he just pulled away with no problem, and she couldn't hold on. And then he said, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to your hand, and he would just envelop it. And he'd say, okay, now you, you pull away. And, of course, she couldn't. And then he would refer to this verse. Now, I learned that the hard way as a young father. Um, I, we were in Pennsylvania, and our oldest son was just a little guy, just barely uh, past walking. We, we were in a, a small town, drove the 13 miles to the nearest store. It was a, a, a Kmart. And uh, I had my son, Nathan, with me. And I had packages and so on. I said, now, Nathan, hold on to me. And so he was holding on. We started to walk across the, the parking lot to the car. And uh, there were cars that were slowing down. There, there wasn't any real danger. But uh, we had taken a, a couple of steps. And, of course, then he stumbled and he fell down. And I just knew all of the cars that had slowed down were saying, what an awful father that man is. I couldn't make eye contact. I couldn't even, I couldn't even look up. And so I, you know, I got him, and we went and got in the car. Well, here's what happened the next time we got there. The next time I said, like I should have the first time, Nathan, give me your hand. And so I, I took his hand, and then as we're walking across in front of, uh, you know, the cars and so on, he did what happens when they're learning to walk, and he stumbled. And so I just kind of picked him up, you know, and his feet were there. And then I just kind of let him, let him back down to the pavement, and then we walked to the car. And, you know, if anybody saw me, they probably thought, now that's a good father there, you know. Well, that's the idea, isn't it? That's, that's what he's saying here. It's not about us holding on to the Father's hand. If that were the case, we would fall away. We would stumble and not be able to get back up. But instead, it's him holding on to us. And we still stumble. And that's when he kind of picks us up, and we try to get our bearings back, and when we're ready, He lets our feet go back down to the floor. That's how He treats us. And that is our ultimate comfort, that He's holding us tight, tight. So we come to the table today which was prepared for 
the family of God by Christ himself. He said it on the cross with his work. He sealed it with his Holy Spirit. And he wants us to eat of it to be strengthened in our faith as we commune with the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He wants to remind us that we have been adopted at the high price of his blood on the cross. And this is how it's expressed in the Word of God. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without determining, discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there he gives us the gracious invitation to his children, you who are trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life. He says, don't forget you've been adopted and this is a family table. Don't worry. It's not about what you did. It's about what the Lord Jesus has done. But then he also gives a, a gracious warning to those who are outside of Christ. I said there's at least four groups here today. And if you find yourself outside of Christ, we're glad that you're here. I want you to keep coming. But if you're not at that point of faith, of trusting in Him alone, then don't, don't take with the family. We want you to watch it, but just let the element go right on by. Because his warning is this. If you take and you shouldn't be taking, then you're calling down judgment upon yourself. And I don't want that for you, but you don't want that for you. Don't make a mockery of this table. Because this represents all of the work of Jesus Christ for his children. But watch and listen to the truths of this. And come back. Ask him for faith. Trust in Christ.